This is Father Gregory Pine. And this is Father Bonaventure Chapman. And welcome to God's Planning. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to God's Planning wherever you listen to your podcasts. For this episode of Guest Planning, we are very delighted and honored to have with us Mr. Brandon Vaught. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Uh, my delight. Been a big fan of your show for quite some time, so it's good to be here in person. Thanks. Hey, that's, that's very generous of you. Um, many folks who listen to Catholic podcasts will know you from the Word on Fire podcast and your extensive work with Bishop Barron, which is, again, a great service to the church for which we're super grateful, uh, a kind of leading light in the Catholic media world. Uh, and others will know you from books that you've published or other media apostolates in which you're engaged. But for those who don't know you or for those who would like to know more, would you just say a word, who you are, where you're from, what you do? Sure. Um, I'm Brandon Vod. I'm a family man with eight young children. We live on a farm in Oviedo, Florida, which I, I just learned before we were recording that Father Bonaventure lived in my little town, Oviedo, Florida, for a little bit of, a, of his life. Um, we uh, live on a homestead here, and that's where I do all my work from. Uh, so I, my day job is I work at Word on Fire, Bishop Robert Barron's media apostolate. I run the publishing house, so I'm the senior publishing director um, we publish dozens of books every year on theology and philosophy and literature and, and much more. And it's a great delight for a bibliophile like myself. Um, and then on the side, I do other evangelistic work. I write books. I've written, I think, 11 books now. Um, I have an online platform called Claritas U, where I teach Catholics how to discuss hot button issues, things like abortion, contraception, homosexuality, transgenderism things that make most Catholics anxious. I teach them how to become clear and confident about discussing those things with others. Um, and I'm the founder of a brand new high school here in Orlando called the Chesterton Academy of Orlando. It's a classical high school grounded in the Catholic faith. Um, anybody that wants to find out more about that can go to ChestertonOrlando.com. And whether you like Chester or not, you should go and check that out because uh, I'm, it'll, be, it'll be delightful. And uh, Brandon, it's, it is great to meet someone else who knows where Oviedo is and actually lives there and has founded a small school because I did teach at a, a Baptist school um, down there. And I, you, I don't know if you're prepared for this yet, but one of the things I remember about teaching down there was uh, alligators have to be, you have to be concerned about them. So I remember coming out of math class, I was teaching math one time, walking out and there it was, just an alligator hanging out by the door. Um, and so you need to remove the children, keep them away, and then you can ride it. So I'm sure that you'll have <laughs> rope it up. You should have plans about how to, yeah, how to deal with al alligators. Although you're probably used to this by now with the with, with the homesteading. Do you have? I mean, do they, do they carry away your livestock at all, or no? Yeah, we've we've had alligator attacks. We've had a couple alligators in the little pond that we have on our property. In fact, there our neighbor go. helped us catch one and cook it. Um, and my, my daughter who hates meat of all sorts, doesn't like chicken, doesn't like steak, doesn't like pork, but we cooked this alligator and she announced to the family that her favorite meat is now alligator meat. And we're thinking, how are we ever going to provide this again? It's like a once in a lifetime chance. Wow. wow. Okay. Um, how would you describe alligator meat? Uh, most people just use the word gamey for meat. They don't know how to describe, but apart <laughs> yeah. from gamey, what would you say? Yeah, it's, I mean, similar in texture to chicken. I think if you did a blind taste test, few people would be able to tell the difference. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Okay. All yeah. Right. I think there was you've a never time had, You've never had alligator meat, Father Gregory? I, I th I'm thinking there was a time when I did because I have an uncle who lives in Parkland, Florida, and I think he sent alligator meat. And I don't know that my mom uh, prepared it especially well because I just remember chewing for a bit um, and then for a bit mm -hmm. more. 
And then my mom wanted to use it up. So she quote unquote snuck it into the omelets the next morning. And we're like, wow, these omelets, man, they just, <laughs> they just, wow. Um, okay. So uh, second question attendant upon that introduction, in addition to alligator meat and its taste. Uh, so a Chesterton Academy, I think maybe some people have followed the goings on of Chesterton Academies in the U S and the work of Dale Alquist in a special, in a special way. Uh, but maybe some people think, wait, do you just, do you just read? G.K. Chesterton? Is it like a great books course, but only G.K. Chesterton? What is it about a, a Chesterton Academy that's distinctive? Uh, well, I think a few hallmarks are distinctive. One is that it is a great books-based program. So it's it's a classical school. So think liberal education. Our kids are reading Homer and Augustine and Aquinas and Shakespeare and the great philosophers and theologians of the tradition, including G.K. Chesterton. So yes, he's on our syllabus every year. Mm -hmm. Um, it's also a, a model that's marked with joy. So if you go visit any of the Chesterton academies around the country, I think there's around 60 of them now that have cropped up. Um, you'll find an environment where kids enjoy going to school because the way they learn typically in a Socratic dialogue style, um, it's engaging, it's respectful, it's, uh, it, it pulls the, the great truths and goodness and beauty of our tradition um, out of the kids. They, they love going to school. Um, so it's marked by joy. And then I think the third hallmark is it's Catholicism. So it's it's an unapologetically Catholic school. Um, the days are marked by daily mass and or liturgy of the hours and or liturgical feast days. Um, kids love their faith. It's integrated into all the other disciplines. So it's not like religion classes over here and science and math and literature and history over there. Um, the faith is imbued throughout all the courses. So I think those three things, classical, joy, joyful, and Catholic are what sets our schools apart. That's awesome. I am sold. Um, yeah. So we're going, let's do it. Recommendations yeah, we, to make. You guys can apply. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see if, if you make the enrollment process. <laughs> Dang. Okay. All right. Step one, become 15 again. Step two, there is no step two. Um, all right. So we thought that for the topic of this particular episode, uh, we would drill down on one of the themes that you addressed in one of those aforementioned books, so what to say and how to say it, uh, which you have multiple volumes of. Uh, so this seems to be, you know, part of your apostolate is to help people to grow in confidence uh, and to grow in competence, really, in their apologetic efforts, because I think a lot of people feel like uh, I, I kind of know the faith, or at least I have a deep and abiding sympathy with the faith. I mean, I believe, but I don't necessarily know how to express it in the best way, or I don't know how to, how to argue it in the best way. So we thought that we would treat uh, transgenderism insofar as it's an issue that everyone has to confront in some way, shape, or form, uh, unless you live under a rock, which is a decent description of religious life. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so maybe as a way to start the conversation, we could just do like a little kind of vocabulary. Uh, in, in the book, you address terms uh, as a way to maybe clear the ground or get some obstacles out of the way. So what do you think is important to understand better or to clarify before launching these types of arguments? Sure. And if we could maybe just set the stage a, a bit, one of the things I focus on in my work is what I might describe as conversational apologetics. So it's not just about having the right arguments or the right responses to people's views. It's about navigating a conversation with somebody in a winsome and persuasive way. And as you say, the basic starting point is defining your terms. If you guys aren't using the same terms in the same way, you'll just talk past each other. And when it comes to transgenderism, I think the two most basic terms that uh, often are equivocated are sex and gender. 
sex and gender. Um, let me let me lay out how I, I think a, a good Catholic would understand these terms. So sex refers to your biological makeup, either male or female. There are only two sexes. It's a scientific fact. Typically, your genes will determine which of the two sexes that you are, and it can never change. It's hardwired by your DNA. So regardless of your appearance, regardless of your emotion, regardless of your belief, you will always and only either be male or female. So that's sex. Um, gender. Now, this is a fairly recent phenomenon. I won't get into all the backstory there, but traditionally, gender is the individual's self-perception of whether they're male or female, masculine or feminine. Usually, traditionally, the, the gender was uh, correlated to your sex. So if your sex was male, then you had a male or masculine gender. If your sex was female, you would have a female or a feminine gender. But Today, many believe that gender is disconnected from sex. So this is one of the great divorces of the modern period. You might be, people say, a biological male, but you have a female or feminine gender. Um, and famously, transgender advocates suggest that there are more than just two genders. In fact, you know, the common trope is that Facebook will allow you to select from among 50 different gender identities when you're signing up for the service. So that's what I think we need to start with is what do we mean by sex? What do we mean by gender? And then that's our entry point to talking about transgenderism. So if I can define transgender briefly too, this is kind of an umbrella term. It's used ambiguously sometimes, but it's a term for the condition of identifying with or expressing a gender identity that does not match your sex. Now it could take many forms. It could refer just to the mental state of having this dichotomy, or it could refer to cross-dressing, it could refer to hormonal treatment, or even what's become known as sex reassignment surgery. Um, it could be uh, someone who identifies as a gender besides male or female, which is usually referred to as non-binary or agender. Uh, so maybe we'll, we'll start there. Is sex, gender, transgender, until we understand those terms, it's hard to, to go any further. Yeah, I think it's it is important to clarify those terms and what, it's interesting that sex for instance pretty standard as you say throughout history and the time it's hard to move on this one. And gender, I think when people first hear it they kind of assume sex just is gender um and that they're perfectly related. And then I find that if you start to say well actually they're, you know, they're different and people then immediately slide into oh well if they're different then they're totally separate. Right? So you might get a sense oh and that's where I think transgender has this idea that because something's different, it's also then totally separate. How would you want to say, okay, we can distinguish between, we want to say sex is not gender, gender is not sex. And yet at the same time, even though they're different and distinguished, we still want to keep them related. So how do you, how do you bring them back together with people, do you find? Or do you find that uh, that's not as big of a problem? No, I do hear that quite often. Um, there's a bunch of different analogies you can give either to the body and the soul or to the mind and the brain. Um, these things we would say are distinct from each other, but not independent from each other, that they go together. And so your soul is tied to a particular body. At least we would, we would say so as, as Catholics. And so you can't say, well, my soul, I have a male soul, but a female body. That's it's nonsensical according to our you know, philosophical framework. And sometimes depending on the sophistication of the person you're talking with, you, you need to back up and go all the way down to that level of 
a basic anthropology. What does it mean to be a human being? Um, it means in part that you have these things that can't be divided, your sex and your gender, your body and your soul, mm -hmm. your mind and your brain. These things uh, j just go together and it's not arbitrary. It's not ad hoc. That's just the way reality is. Um, but what, what I like to try to help people see, and maybe this is pushing the conversation a little further down the road than we, than we need to at the beginning, is that in every other area of life, when we sense that there's a disconnect uh, between something in the mind and something in the body, we tend to favor the body as being uh, corresponding to reality. So let me give you an example. Take uh, something like anorexia. So um, this, many people have drawn the parallel between anorexia among young people in the, let's say, 80s and 90s, and then the transgender phenomenon among young people today. And they would say with an anorexic young person, you have somebody whose body may be very thin, but their mind tells them they're overweight, they're fat, and they need to lose weight, and therefore they're going to starve themselves or you know participate in bulimia or something like that. Um, we recognize in that case that their body's fine, that what we're dealing with is a, a psychological problem. There's something off in the mind, and the solution is to address the problem in the mind so that it corresponds to the body and thus to reality. That's true in almost every other disconnect between a psychological state and a bodily state, except in transgenderism. It's the only case, it seems to me, where by and large, we have exactly the opposite reaction. Whenever somebody feels uh, what's known as dysphoria, meaning a discomfort in uh, a particular aspect of your being. And gender dysphoria is the particular case here. When someone suffers from gender dysphoria, they feel like there's a mismatch between their body and their self-perception of their gender. Um, instead of addressing the mental psychological issue, we instead try to manipulate the body. And so this is where we get into hormones or sex reassignment surgery to correspond with the mind. Um, and so I often like to push that um, to somebody who suggests that these two things are completely independent and say, well, mm -hmm. if that were the case, then for an anorexic young person, why do we treat them in this way? Why do we assume that the mind and the body should have some harmony? But in transgenderism, we're comfortable splitting those two things apart. And I think that's a good way to get the gears start turning. Um, so in the book, you ask about like what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. Um, you know, for a lot of us in the past year, I suspect uh, folks have seen Matt Walsh's documentary, What is a Woman? And I think that has heightened our appreciation of the importance of asking and answering this question in a particular way. But, but certainly as you, as you describe the argument, you know, or as you describe the situation with um, kind of fixing either the pole on the side of the body or fixing the pole on the side of the soul. It strikes me that in the present moment, uh, it's almost as if everything is up for grabs except pushing the envelope or everything is up for grabs except, you know, human capacity to determine or to specify according to his or her own whim. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in your conversations or, you know, in the kind of Claritas U sessions that you have, do you find some success in trying to help people fix a particular point in the conversation or a particular point in reality that gives them a sense of terra firma? Or are we just in shifting sand territory for the foreseeable future? 
I don't think so. In my experience, not only talking with adults, but talking with young people too. I, you know, interact with with lots of younger people throughout high school and elsewhere online as well. Um, I, I do find that there's a breaking point to the insanity. So, for example, um, are, we begin by being okay with people identifying with a gender that doesn't correspond with their body. But then the next obvious question is, well, if people can self-define with traits that aren't that don't correspond to their physical existence, why stop with just gender? Why not other traits such as you know race or height or intelligence or you know uh, vocation or job or skill? And I think we've seen some of these you know we might call them reductio ad absurdum type arguments over the last couple of years, and I found that they resonate with young people. So let me give you a concrete example. There was a, a video from a few years ago where a gentleman went to a college campus and he it was you know a man on the street interview he goes around asking college students questions and he said um you know we're doing a documentary or something on on gender and what would you say this was a i don't know five foot nine white guy maybe in his 30s or 40s and he said what would you say if i told you that i was a woman uh, clearly a man clearly dressed like a man but what would you say if i told you i was a woman and by and large i think it was 100 percent of the people in the that he interviewed said oh you know if if you identify as a woman then all power to you and you know that's great and i mean that's that's predictable that's that's where we're at in the cultural moment but then he asks a new group of people well you know what would you say if i told you that i was an asian woman and there was a couple people that would pause and like, clearly he doesn't look Asian, but if he identifies as Asian, they would say, well, you know, who am I to say that, that you're not Asian? Maybe, I don't know, maybe you have Asian DNA or maybe even though you don't look Asian, you are. Um, but again, by and large, the majority of them were fine with that. But then he took it a step further and said, what would you say if I told you, you know, I was a, a seven foot Asian woman, five foot nine guy doing the interviews. And so you have clearly uh, objectively not aligning with his self-identity. But again, most people were were fine with it. I think when you play a reductio ad absurdum scenario like that to most young people, they realize that something's off. And if something's off at the end, it, it must be the principle that's allowing this thing to play out. It's the you know reductio ad absurdum uh, framework. And so I, I found that that's been the most helpful way to to get underneath these premises that are undergirding the transgender movement. Um, I think if you get stuck at the level of just defining what a man or what a woman is, as important as those conversations are, in many ways, they presuppose so much anthropology behind them that you're just going to, you're going to be getting into semantics and, and just definitions, and you're not going to make really any headway in helping them escape what I think is, is a really dangerous uh, viewpoint that, our psychological states don't correspond to our, our physical states. The best way I think is to expose, if we start with this idea that we might be something that doesn't correspond with our physical reality and then show how it plays out into an absurd way, I, I think that's the best way to get young people, especially second guessing whether this is a good framework for understanding humanity. Hmm. Yeah. And you just touched on this for a second, but I want, I want to follow up on it because I think it's important in in our modern society, there's a sense in which there's, well, you know, private stuff is private. We have public goods that are important to, to regulate and laws and all of this sort of thing. But, 
you know, in our private, we don't private sphere, we don't get all the way down on things. So if someone wants to say they're ex, then as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, then what's the big deal? I mean, are you just imposing your views, uh, this sort of thing? And I, you said let, at the end there, the last comment that there is something that actually is damaging about this. Um, but if someone asks and people think, well, you know, no one's saying that they're five foot nine when they're seven foot two or this sort of thing. But some people find it really important to say that they are actually a woman, even though their biological sex is, is male. And, you know, what's what? What does that hurt? What does that hurt? Um, what do you I mean, how how, how do we respond to, to that generously? Um, but what do you think to, to respond to? Because we have this model, I think, today in America where, well, as long as if I can't show that it's going to hurt someone outside, then you know, I'm just being kind of a meanie if I'm telling someone else this sort of thing. What do you think we, we say to, what do you think we should say to that? Yeah, well, if I can pull a page out of Aquinas's book and strengthen the argument even more and steel man it even more, I, I think there's a lot of people who are saying not only, you know, what will it hurt if you just, you know, agree with transgender people, but they're saying if you don't agree with their self-identity, they will harm themselves or kill themselves. So it's it's what's become known as the argument to mod suicide, that if we don't go along with what what people believe their genders to be, then they're going to kill themselves. Mm -hmm. um, I would say a few things. One, as a Catholic, we should always lead with compassion. I talk about in the book, the Catechism of the Catholic Church has that great treatment, I think, of how to engage people struggling with same-sex attraction. And um, I forget the exact words, but it says something like treat them with respect, uh, sensitivity, and compassion. I think that that same framework should be applied to people wrestling with gender issues and those who love them, you know, parents of, of people with gender issues, et cetera, that that should be the first move is we're not, we're not trying to, to just shout at them that they're wrong or that they're mistaken or that they're going down a dangerous path, but compassion. It is true that gender dysphoria is a real thing and it's horrible. It's horrible. I, I try to think myself like, what would it what would it feel like to genuinely believe that you were trapped in the wrong body? Um, the more I've reflected on that, the more horrific I think it is. You feel just a complete loss of of self. Of, you feel confused. You feel like you were mismade. Um, so that should be the the first Catholic move is to always respond with compassion. But then secondly, um, truth truth, caritas in veritate, uh, charity in truth. We need to explain to people that even if a truth will make someone feel discomforted, that that's not a reason to abandon the truth. Um, if a man thinks that he's a woman, we shouldn't affirm his confusion and pretend he's a woman just because we're worried that if we don't, he'll hurt himself. You know, Instead of playing into his confusion, we need to find healthy ways to help him bring his gender conformity, his gender into conformity with his body, as many people suffering with gender dysphoria have done. I think it, there's also this common assumption that either we go along with everything, or they're going to hurt or kill themselves. Uh, but there's there's a middle option, the compassionate option, which is no, there is a real problem there. How can we help alleviate it? How can we help solve it while also being in line with with truth? Um, so that's that's the approach that mm -hmm. that I generally take. And obviously, as with any of these conversations, there needs to be a level of gentleness, diplomacy, compassion. Uh, we're not warriors out to just make people realize they're wrong. Um, we're there to help them see the truth because doing so is an act of love. But we need to do it respectfully of this person and their particular situation.
It's interesting. Uh, just apropos of that comment, I'm thinking of, uh, say, there's someone whom you know and love who has dementia or has Alzheimer's. I haven't read the literature on any of this, but I've been told that like rule one is you don't lie to the person, even though the perpetual discovery that, you know, like her husband is no longer living might be devastating with each recognition. Like if you feed um, a potential, you know, deception or you feed a potential misprision of reality, then it can actually worsen the person's condition like, or it can make the recognition when it comes even more so. Um, which yeah, like I don't, and I think part of what's so difficult is that we we hate to be the occasion of another sadness or we hate to be the occasion of another's perceived rejection, which I think leads into another point, because when you address certain, you know, like principal objections to and the way in which we respond, uh, it seems that a lot of those objections are that by not, like you said, affirming or by not conforming to the societal standard, then we are thereby bigoted or intolerant or whatever. Um, and I think, and I think that this registers very keenly for a lot of people because they just, they just don't want to be involved in conflict, especially conflict, not of their choosing. And since a lot of these issues command a public space that we're at least privy to, and sometimes, you know, deeply implicated in, it becomes almost impossible. So, you know, for the Christian witness, who is conflict averse and is made especially uncomfortable by these types of issues because they seem to embroil them necessarily in conflict. Do you have any other counsel or advice or particular ways of approaching the problem? I do. Yeah. One thing I've learned over the years is that confidence and clarity will, will reduce the anxiety you have over conflict. So the more confident you are about a particular topic, the less worried you are about discussing it with others, even people who disagree. Um, one of my friends, Ryan Anderson, who's become uh, a great spokesman on both this issue, transgenderism, but also same-sex marriage, um, has, has written books on these topics. He studied the issues inside and out. He knows the best arguments the opponents can throw at them, and he knows exactly how to respond to those arguments. You know, he's like, like Thomas in this way. And a few years ago, he was invited onto um, Pierce Morgan's show. Now, Pierce Morgan is, you know, famously liberal commentator, and I think they even had, if I'm remembering correctly, Susie Orman, another prominent they liberal did. commentator. And it this was brutal. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, it was like everyone's brutal. worst nightmare, right? Yeah. You think of like appearing on stage naked at a student performance. This is that, but in the intellectual world, he was invited into the lion's den of this show. He was not even invited to sit like yeah. on stage at the podium. They made him sit in the crowd. He was just sitting in a seat and then they were just grilling him with these objections of why he doesn't support same-sex marriage. Why are you so bigoted and homophobic and all this stuff? But what, what really struck me was how calm and unrattled and unshaken he was. And he gave very clear, coherent, charitable answers to each of these. And you could tell that Pierce and Susie were taken aback because they thought these were just dynamite objections that were just going to destroy this young kid. But he had done his homework and he had heard all these objections before. None of them were new. And so he wasn't at all rattled. Now, that's the extreme case. Chances are most of us aren't going to be called on the national television to defend our views. But my point is that the more that you you read and get clear and confident about topics like this, the less averse you are to discuss them with others. In fact, you become dare I say, a little excited to talk about them with others. You know, now that 
that I've become comfortable on transgenderism or abortion or homosexuality, I'm excited to share the truth of those things with people who haven't yet seen it. Um, that doesn't mean I'm aggressive. Doesn't mean I'm eager to, you know, tell them how wrong they are. But it, it means I'm not averse to conflict over those things. Now we use the word conflict in a pejorative sense because in, in most cases you have two people who don't have fully formed views arguing about a topic, and they're just shouting slogans or you know their emotional reactions against each other, and the temperature rises and the whole thing blows up. That's not what I mean by. By conflict, by conflict, I mean the exchange of two opposing views or two opposing ideas. That can be done in a healthy, productive way if you you know what you're talking about beforehand. So that's the whole reason why I do what I do, why why I've written my my books, why I uh, run this Claritas U site is to help Catholics get confident about these things so that they're not anxious about conflict, they're not worried mm -hmm. about discussing them. Yeah, I think in we talk about this conversational stuff and the confidence there is is so important. And I think people perceive confidence as arrogance today, and that's why your notes of of the loving kind of attentiveness uh, and gentleness to it can blunt some of that. So someone can't go, well, he knew all his stuff, but arrogant people know stuff, and arrogant people are bad, therefore he's bad. I think people they make this this sense. But I'm interested about um, these are. We're going to have to have these conversations. The average person will have to have these conversations more and more. I don't like the internet and computers. I don't think transgenderism is just going to go away. I don't know of any particular societal kind of event, things, the issue like this that has ever gone away, um, but it just seems to get worse. So one, is there hope, do, any message of hope of, of uh, that this isn't just going to keep getting worse? And two, maybe related to it more practically, when you... When someone finds himself having to have this conversation, you realize, uh-oh, I'm going to have to talk with transgender now. Um, what's, do you have like, is there like a, a thought they should have, a kind of basic like, okay, I mean, you say you should be confident, but is there some way to kind of enter in and keep in their mind? Because I think when people get in uncomfortable conversations like this, it's easy to get defensive, as you say, and kind of shouty and back and forth. So is there a way, so one, is there hope? And two, is there any kind of, you know, swing thought if you're a golfer or like, you know, argument thought to keep in mind so that you don't come across as arrogant or defensive or you just don't have a bad experience of this and you give the best, put the best foot forward to give the person the truth if they can hear it? Yes, there's hope because we're on the side of truth and truth will, will always win. Truth is a person, Jesus Christ. And even though it seems at times that the individual battles or skirmishes are being lost and truth is being clouded, truth will ultimately prevail. Um, it seems to me people, people don't accept falsehood for long, for generations, because falsehood inevitably produces terrible results. And I think we're starting to see this. To me, it's it, the transgender moment is kind of cresting a little bit. I think what you're seeing it especially is the intersection of transgenderism and sports. I think this is where it's going to become extremely clear that, uh, that men who identify as women should not be playing against biological women and that injuries are going to occur and there's unfairness left and right. Um, this is, I think, where people are going to draw the line uh, and it's going to, again, the reductio ad absurdum, cause them to backtrack and say, well, if, if it's not fine in this area, why is it? Maybe we should reconsider this principle. So there's hope. There's hope. As In regards to what people should keep in mind, um, if you don't know the right things to say or the right points to make, your best uh, move should always be to ask questions and to listen and to empathize. That you can do no matter what you know. 
And especially on this issue, transgenderism, um, I like to ask lots and lots of questions. Well, tell me, what do you what do you mean by by gender? You know, are you say, you know, you're you identify as transgender, you have a son or daughter who does what what do you mean by transgender? Um, if if you sense that your body doesn't correspond to who you are, what what's that like? Tell me what that what that feels like. Um, they might say something like, well, you, you, you just don't understand, you know, you're, you're cis, uh, which is a, a term used for cisgender, meaning your, your body and your gender correspond, you're cisgender, you couldn't understand, you can say, well, that, that, that's probably true, you know, I've never experienced this. So please tell me, tell me what it's like, I'd love to, to learn more. And then after they tell you, empathize, you know, for many of them, it's a very painful and a very difficult struggle, the emotional agony can can feel unbearable. So don't deny their pain, be sensitive to it, make sure that they know that you empathize with their struggle. Um, and then from there, ask these sort of probing questions that I've, I've hinted at a little earlier, you know, take, take other examples where uh, you have something like anorexia, or there's a new phenomenon called BIID, bodily integrity, something disorder. I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but um, you have people, and this is a, a documented medical phenomena where people with perfectly healthy limbs, for example, uh, think that they're paraplegic, that their arms don't work or their legs don't work. And because this is their, their sense of self, they seek surgery to amputate their limbs so that their body corresponds to their sense of self. And we would say, that's terrible. Like you should not cut off a perfectly working arm or a perfectly working leg. But then we should ask, well, well, why is it terrible? Why is that bad that we should not harm a healthy working body just so it matches the psychological state of the person whose body it is? Um, but again, even if you can't get to that point, even if you don't know the right buttons to push or the questions to ask, you can listen and express sympathy and compassion. And that'll go a long, long way. Okay, we've uh, come to the end of our time, um, but uh, thanks so much for taking the time uh, and for taking the time patiently to kind of walk us through the vocabulary and the grammar, uh, the steps as it were that we might take in turn to formulate some of these conversations or at least to participate in them more fruitfully. So thanks again. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Good to be with mm -hmm. you. Thanks, Brandon. Um, I, saw, I saw on your website that you're not currently accepting new speaking engagements on a point of principle so that you can attend better to your family of 10 and to your new high school and to the various apostolic ventures that are currently in play. But uh, for those who want to follow up with you and your work, uh, are there places to which you can refer them? Sure. The best place is my website, which is just my name, brandonvot.com. And then I've mentioned it a few times, but I have a large platform called Claritas U. So Claritas, the Latin word for clarity, and then U, the letter U, claritasu.com. And I teach dozens of video courses there on things like transgenderism, abortion, homosexuality, and much more, how to discuss these things as a Catholic and become clear and confident so you're not anxious about them anymore. Boom. That sounds very good indeed. A desirable thing. Um, so turning then you, to you, the listener, uh, thanks as always for listening to this episode of Godsplaining. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Like the episode, subscribe on YouTube or your podcast app and leave a five-star review. Uh, if you'd like to donate to the, to the podcast through Patreon, please follow the link in the description or in the show notes. Uh, in those same 
descriptions and or show notes, you'll find links for merchandise and also for upcoming events. So the first announcement for upcoming Godsplaining events will be at the beginning of March, and we'll be looking forward to visiting with you, to meeting you in the context of our annual retreats, which will take place over the summer and in the early fall. So stay tuned uh, for those postings, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on Godsplaining. Mm-hmm.